during the second week, I actually went to sleep. I was so relaxed. And the hunting horns always used to come in as an alarm. Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Laura East. And I'm John O'Neill. Each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. Our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, That's me. will also take us behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham to discover more about what goes into making a great amateur production. The theme of today's episode is comedy and farce. That's F-A-R-C-E, farce, in the theatre. And Michael McLernan and Laura will be talking to our guest, Jeff Poole, about his nearly 60 years as an amateur actor and theatre lover in the city of Birmingham and the town of Oldbury, and why the best comedy moments are not always the ones you plan for. Keen-eared listeners might notice that John and I sound a bit far apart this month. Laura's joining me via a popular video calling app, as she is currently self-isolating in line with COVID-19 guidance. Hello? Hello? Uh, Laura, you're on mute! Um, The mute button nightmare strikes. That's right, John. I'm at home, so I don't put you or anyone in the theatre at risk. But the show must go on. The show must go on. And don't worry... Laura and Michael's interview this episode with Jeff Poole was recorded some time ago following all the necessary safety measures. And so, through the magic of radio and podcasting, let's hand over to Laura and Michael in the Crescent Theatre. We're delighted to welcome this episode Jeff Poole, one of the longest standing members of the Crescent. Uh, Jeff's been with the Crescent for nearly 49 years, I believe. Correct. And been acting for uh, at least 10 years longer than that. You got it. Outside the theatre, Jeff's uh, main loves are music and film. Sure. Jeff, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? I got into acting purely by default. Um, I uh, I ne- never went to the theatre as a, a lad or a, a young man. Uh, I joined a youth club in the early 1960s. And they presented me with a list of hobbies and interests. And uh, there were about 20, 25, and I couldn't find any that uh, I could logically tick. Uh, But um, I saw uh, drama and table tennis. And uh, I I ticked table tennis. And then I thought, well, should I tick drama or not? And I thought, well, yes, why not? Two is twice as good as one. So I ticked drama and nothing happened for about six months. And then the lady who ran the youth club, uh, she popped over to see me and she said, were you serious when you uh, ticked drama? And I said, why? And she said, well, we've got a rehearsal this evening and uh, someone hasn't turned up. Would you be prepared to come and read in? I said, sure, I'll finish the game and I'll be along. I went along and the chap never turned up ever again. So I was lumbered with a role. But uh, then the chap who was directing these plays, uh, he uh, was a member of Oldby Rep. And he said, if you want to persist with this uh, when you finish at the youth club, perhaps you'd like to come along to Oldby Rep. They're always looking out for fresh blood. And I went along and uh, I got a, a part in Clifford Odette's Winter Journey, which I thought was a super play. It was only a walk on, but it was a start. 
and uh, I was there for about a decade and things weren't working out. I was on more different committees than I was acting, so I thought that's not what I came here for. So I wrote on during the Crescent and uh, that was 1972. Yeah, my uh, debut there was Andrei Guchik in Twelfth Night and uh, it was an absolute actor's gift. It's a wonderful part. Uh, it was a superb cast. We, we did it in the round and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was wonderful. Um, uh, I know that Agu Cheek's a gift because I went, went on later to play Sir Toby Belch, which isn't a gift <laughs> if you want to get the balance right. And I don't think I gave him enough laughs. So, Jeff, you've talked a bit about your um, origins in the theatre. Tell us about your first love. Shortly after joining Obi Rep, one of the directors was coming round with the news that the National Theatre Company was coming to Birmingham on tour. And uh, I, I didn't know where the National Theatre was. I'd never been to the theatre. I, I, I may have come to the Crescent once to see uh, Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending because I, I loved the Sidney Lumet film with Marlon Brando and Joan Woodward. Uh, when I came away, uh, I thought, well, how do they remember all the lines? Decades later, I still don't know. I do not know how they learn all those lines. The National Theatre. Yeah, uh, they said, uh, yes, they're, they're coming for a week. Uh, they're bringing Othello, uh, Uncle Vanya and Hobson's Choice. And he said, uh, do, do you want a ticket? And I, I said, oh, yes, please, sounds good. And uh, he says, uh, which one? I says, oh, all of them. And uh, anyway, uh, I took my fairly new girlfriend and along we went to see Laurence Olivier and Frank Finley and Michael Redgrave and all these superheroes of the theatre. Uh, that was my first love. It was a week with the National Theatre. Week with the National Theatre. What's been the love of your theatrical life? Well, I've been involved in over 130 productions, so it's devilishly difficult to pick one out. I'll rattle a few off, if I may. Of course. Um, I love doing the Joe Orton trilogy, which uh, I played Ed in Entertaining Mr. Sloan. I played Truscott in Loot and Rance in What the Butler Saw. I was particularly pleased with What the Butler Saw because it was a great cast and uh, the chap who was playing the Dirty Doctor, I forgot what his name, name was, the character's name, but uh, he dropped out ten days before opening night. So he was left with this huge dilemma whether to shelve it or not. The chap who was directing it, who had a, he had a colleague who uh, was the guy who played Sloan opposite my head, Ian Hudson, I knew him quite well at that stage. And uh, he came in at the last moment. He directed it at the Crescent about 10 years previously and he really put us all to shame. It was phenomenal. Like most actors, I adored playing bottom. Uh, I had difficulty with the rehearsals because the lady who directed it wanted me to do Black Country, which is radically different to Birmingham. And uh, because they elongate their vowels so much, and almost uh, stick an extra syllable in. You know, it was havoc with the iambic pentameter. <laughs> so it was not a happy rehearsal period, but the run was great. I, I loved the run. 
and uh, I won a BRMB Spotlight Award for it. So uh, I must have been doing something right. The other news about that production, that was 1982, and the other news was that the following year, the director contacted us all and asked us if we'd like to do it outdoors at Alverston Manor at Stratford. And that was the very first Crescent production to be performed outdoors. And it, it, was, it was wonderful because, you know, it, a bit of refreshing, uh, but you didn't have to start from scratch on the lines again. We did four nights and it, it, it was a joy. The only problem with acting bottom outside is that, as you all probably know, he's got about 20 minutes, 25 minutes when he's asleep on stage. On the stage, during the second week, I actually went to sleep. I was so relaxed and the hunting horns always used to come in as an alarm. But when you're lying outside this huge, underneath this huge oak tree and you've got a few spiders and you've got a few ants and you can't start fidgeting because you'll upstage the actors. I, I never yes. look forward to that 20 minutes, I tell you. <laughs> but I, I love doing it. I loved uh, Joe Keller in All My Sons. I don't know if this is relevant, but it was certainly relevant to me. In 1966, a new company opened in Birmingham called Independent Theatre. Uh, it was run by two Cambridge graduates, uh, Robert Atkins and Anthony Everett, who went on to be Minister for Culture and Arts. And they wanted to form a radical theatre that had nothing to do with the Rep, the Alex or the Hippodrome. And they proved it with the first season, it was Georg uh, Buchner's Wojciech his Danton's death, um, Max Frisch's The Fire Raisers, and then tucked at the end of the season because they had to wait for the rel relinquishment of the Lord Chamberlain's censorship rules. It was Frank Vedekin's Spring Awakening. So I went along and I got the part of the showman in uh, Wojciech. And not long after we started rehearsals, two weeks maybe, the guy playing Wojciech dropped out and... Uh, Anthony asked me if I'd take the role on. So it was by default yet again. And uh, oh, it was wonderful. Uh, I mean, he, he broke, broke all the rules. But that gave you some idea, not only of that production, that company, but of the wildly idealistic times of the 1960s. So what did you particularly enjoy about the role of Wojciech? Um, it was the first time a common man was seen as the protagonist of a play, is that right? That is correct, Laura. Um, what I enjoyed most about it, would, it, it was almost revolutionary. Um, it's a strange little play. It's, it's, I don't think it's complete. It's broken into, I think it's 28 fragments. And they, they all last for a few minutes. And it's, uh, it's got a very sort of dreamlike quality. And uh, it was just the challenges that were through at me, you know. I had to do an epileptic fit. I had to go back to someone's house so he could fill me in the bath for the drowning sequence. And all these things were just a total foreign country to me. I, I, I've been an old rep doing priestly as much as I love him and, and plays like that. But this was just something else. And uh, I regard it as being great importance to me. Yeah. And another one that uh, I loved 
Uh, I'll get a bit more up to date now. There's two that I've loved over the last decade or so. Um, there was the Sunshine Boys, because it was one of those roles that just fitted like a glove. And uh, The Homecoming. I nearly didn't go along to read for The Homecoming, because I'd got to Fortnight's Holiday. I thought I'd go along. The, the guy who directed it directed Sunshine Boys, and we got on very, very well. And uh, he rang me up a few days later and he said, if you promise me that it will be word perfect when you return from Miami, I'll give you the part. And I said, I promise. And wow, it, it was a, a, a wonderful experience. I don't know what it is about evil protagonists in, in comedy plays, but they just seem to fit. It was the same with uh, the uh, Alan Aitbourne play, uh, Season's Greetings. But, you know, the, 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 the audience loved them. And I, I, I have extremely mixed feelings about it because, I mean, Max, the lead character in uh, The Homecoming, is a personification of evil. And, uh, and yet he's hilarious. Halfway through rehearsals, I'd got tickets to see it at uh, Kilburn Theatre, the uh, tricycle, as it was then, with Kenneth Cranham playing the role. And I would never have bought tickets had I realised that I was going to be cast in it. But we went along and I was delighted that we were reading off the same page. You know, uh, there was very little difference. Apart from the one character, the character of the boxer, uh, which Danny Dyer played and he did a very good job. But he played it as um, a, a, a boxer who wasn't very good which I think was a stroke of genius, but uh, we had Simon King playing it, so <laughs> he looks every inch the boxer. Um, yeah, that, that, that. but if I'm going to finally, you'll be glad to hear, pick uh, a favourite. And it's Ronald Howard's The Dresser. And uh, I did this in 1983. And uh, we saw it at the Hippodrome with... Kenneth Haig as Norman the Dresser and uh, Joss Ackland as Sir. And uh, I was besotted with Joss Ackland's performance and deeply wanted to play Sir. I heard through the grapevine, uh, Albury Rep were going to do it and uh, I thought, wow. And then I was told that they was considering me for Norman the Dresser. And I, I was very disappointed. Anyway, I got the play and I read it. And the first time I read it was in, in the office during the lunch break. I just had promotion at work and uh, I was reading the play. And I got to the final few pages and I broke down into tears. And uh, I had to rush to the toilet when the staff returned. Uh, but that feeling, unbelievably, never escaped me. It never got stale, right to the final performance. And that's a hallmark of a bloody good play. I loved it, loved it. I mean, you've had a theatrical career that most professionals could envy. What's the one that got away? Is there one? I suppose, inevitably, it's got to be Death of a Salesman, because... Um, when the Crescent did it, I'm trying to think of a year, in the 90s, I was in a quandary because Aubrey Rep were doing an Inspector Calls and uh, the Crescent were doing Death of a Salesman in the same week. 
And I read them through and read them through and I thought, I'm going to go for the priestly because maybe I'll get a chance to do the uh, Arthur Miller play uh, later on. Anyway, uh, I got the part of Inspector Gould in Inspector Calls, which is another great one that I missed. But yeah, that went well, nothing wrong at all. And then about 10 years later, the Crescent had got it in the programme in the program again. And uh, I went along to the familiarisation and uh, I think I did the first audition and people were speaking to me as though I was down for it really, I've got to be honest. And then the rights to it were taken away at the 11th hour. I did read for it a number of years ago uh, and I was too old. Brendan Stanley got the role and he was wonderful. I couldn't have improved on that. But that's the only one I can think of. Yeah. Tell us about a time when you've died on stage. All the great ones have at one time or another. Well, uh, the characters that I've died are, are quite a few actually. Polonius in Hamlet, uh, Banquo in Macbeth. But there's, there's nothing really to tell about that. Uh, I've dried many a time and got out of it somehow. Um, but a couple of amusing incidents. Uh, I was in The Merchant of Venice. In 1975, I doubled up as uh, Lancelot Gobbo and uh, the Duke of Venice. Quite simple in theory. Uh, the Duke's self-contained into one scene, the important trial scene, uh, and uh, Gobbo's in and out throughout the duration, really. But back in the day, uh, it was makeup as well as costume and wigs and everything. And he needed a different makeup. We timed it and it would take seven minutes. Now, I was promised assistance and uh, all went swimmingly for the first week. But uh, the guy who was uh, assisting me uh, was of a highly amorous nature. And uh, <laughs> he was uh, otherwise uh, contained uh, backstage in the wings with some fair damsel. So I had to do it myself. I'd just about got in on time and the O-level students were in. It was the second Monday of the run. I came out at the top of the steps <laughs> and somebody down the front shouted out, Oh, Gobbo's got all punched up. And uh, I, I couldn't contain it. I walked down this, these steps and uh, everybody on stage had lost it. The backs to the audience and shoulders shaking. And uh, I said, Antonio, I feel sorry for thee. And that's never left me. God, I couldn't <laughs> sleep for nights. <laughs> and the other one, I was in a play called The Young Visitors, Daisy Ashford, who was nine years old when she wrote the book. And a friend of mine did a lovely adaptation. And I was, the, I forget the character's name, but he, he, was a, he wanted to be a gentleman. That was the ethos of his character. And uh, anyway, I mean, it was chaos. I had a bowler hat which was too big. So I asked the props girl to pad it out as best she could. Of course, it was, it was first night. And uh, anyway, she padded the bowler hat out. And uh, the character playing the Prince of Wales came in. So I stood up and took the hat off. And of course, the inside stuck to me head. Anyway, <laughs> the whole place was in uproar. I mean, everyone on stage was... I contained myself for what must have been about four minutes 
And then I, I thought, well, this is stupid. You know, everybody in this room is having great fun at my expense. Why not join in? So I joined in laughing and then we carried on with this. Thank you for telling us about comedy moments of your own. That leads us very nicely into our, into our next question. Um, what kind of comedy do you enjoy watching on stage? Well, comedy that's character-based. I, I, uh, no, it's got to be about real situations and real people. Otherwise, it don't make me laugh. Have you got some examples of some of your favourites of those sorts of character comedies? Well, uh, going back to Joe Orton, I mean, I think Joe Orton's absolutely amazing. Uh, the only problem with Joe Orton is that virtually every line is a laugh line. Um, the Crescent is currently producing Table Manners by Alan Aikborn. Um, can you tell us about your experiences with Aikborn's work, um, both as an actor um, and as an audience member? I've been in several Alan Aikborn plays. The one, uh, Season's Greetings, I played the same role three times. Is this absolutely beastly uncle who's, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he makes sure he boys buys all uh, the children guns for Christmas, whether they're girls or boys. He sends them out to play with their new toys on the gravel pit. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's something to behold. And yet, it's, it's a joy to do. I mean, <laughs> the second time I did it, which was at the Crescent, there was quite a few kids in the audience. It was the Christmas production. When I came on to do the curtain call, all these kids were cheering, and I thought, this is not the right sort of message to send out. But I lapped it up. <laughs> I loved the construction of the play, like all of his. What astonishes me about Aikborn is that he apparently got into theatre aged about 18 or 19, I think as ASM. And I think he did a bit of acting and uh, he went on fairly swiftly to writing. Now, he creates these totally plausible characters who I just don't see how he got around to meeting. You know, his life's in the theatre. These people never go to the theatre let alone involved in it. So that always intrigues me about Alan Aikborn. Um, what have been the most enjoyable aspects of acting in comedies over the years for you? Well, uh, uh, it goes without saying, it, it's getting the laughs. It's, um, it's timing them to perfection. I don't know how I've ever done that, but I've had a damn good try at it. The thing is, playing comedy, you more or less know where you stand. You know, if you're getting a good reaction, you, you're doing it right. It's knowing that, you know, you've got them behind you, whereas with Ibsen uh, and uh, Shakespeare's tragedies, you don't know that. You know. Oh, uh, sorry, I, I'm going to disagree with myself here. I played Gloucester in King Lear, and uh, on two occasions when I was blinded, uh, people had to be taken out of the auditorium. So on that occasion, I, I knew I was getting yeah, it wrong. Right. Okay, yes. Yeah. You've mentioned about having the uh, the audience behind you and, and thinking you know where your laughs land. Um, but what are the challenges for an actor of performing comedy, in your opinion? Um, well, I, I think it's not to play it for laughs. That sounds absurd. I've seen two uh, Aikborn productions this year. Uh, one was his own work. He uh, directed the new play Boy Next Door, which I thought was super. And I hadn't forgotten how funny he was. I hadn't forgotten his compassion, particularly for women. 
I hadn't forgotten is the way you can construct characters, but I had forgotten how ingenious he was. You know, I, it was it was astonishing to see this play, and uh, it all came back to me. What a genius the guy is! Yeah. Um, if you could only watch either comedy or tragedy for the rest of your playgoing life, which would you choose and why? Oh, it'd have to be tragedy now. I'm at just the right age for tragedy. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, those uh, lines of Prospero resonate more every day. Was it every third thought shall be my grave? But the other two thoughts are pretty lively. <laughs> tragedy. Fabulous. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Jeff. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been an absolute delight. Pleasure. We'd love to see your award-winning bottom someday. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks, Michael, Laura, and of course, our fantastic guest, Jeff Poole. Now, John, Jeff told us about the joys and challenges of performing in comedy and watching it as well. We also heard him talk about being a fan of character-based comedy rather than farce. Although there are some brilliant moments of farce in Alan Akebourne's play Table Manners, there is also a lot of character comedy. We might hear about how the Crescent's cast of Table Manners is getting on with both types of comedy later in the episode. But when we're talking about farce, John, what do we mean? Picture the scene. You're sat in an audience. You're breathless with laughter. Or at least crinkled with amusement. But how do you know if what you're watching is farce? One. Farces usually have absurd and highly improbable events in the plot. Situations make you laugh because of their ludicrous and ridiculous nature. Events can be disorganised and chaotic. Unlikely and humorous instances of miscommunication are common. 2. A degree of realism is maintained, despite the irrational or ludicrous situations. This makes it different from, say, totally absurdist or fantastical genres. 3. The protagonist is sometimes a fish out of water, at odds with their environment, not belonging in the place of the action. Characters can be stereotyped or exaggerated caricatures. Performances can be broadly stylized. 4. There's often an element of physical action, indecency, or horseplay, or even violence. 5. Farces are often episodic or short in duration, often set in a single specific location where all events occur. 6. The word farce derives from Old French, meaning stuff or stuffing. In the 15th century, the term was first used. Farces then were pieces of impromptu buffoonery inserted by actors into the texts of religious plays, hence stuffing. French farce quickly spread throughout Europe. 7. The oldest surviving French farce may be The Boy and the Blind Man from way back in 1266. Another well-known French farce that can be accurately dated to 1460 is The Farce of Master Pathelin. 8. Farce is regarded as intellectually and aesthetically inferior to comedy because of crude characterizations and improbable plots, but audiences love it. The form is definitely durable. It has been sustained for centuries by popularity in performance throughout 
the Western world, all the way to the present. Nine modern theatrical examples of farce include 1974's Accidental Death of an Anarchist by Dario Fo, 1982's Noises Off by Michael Frayen, and 1995's Communicating Doors by none other than Alan Akebourne. Ten. Want to go and see a farce in the West End? You can. The Play That Goes Wrong by Henry Lewis has been running since 2012. That's a whopping nine years so far. It's currently running at the Duchess Theatre near Covent Garden and touring nationally. The plot involves a play within a play where a plethora of disasters befall the cast, including doors sticking, props falling from walls and floors collapsing. Characters get hidden in a grandfather clock and one cast member is knocked unconscious. Does that sound like farce to you? Does now, doesn't it? It does. Thanks, John. The Crescent Theatre Company's in rehearsal at the moment for Table Manners by Alan Akebourne, which they'll perform in November. The play is part of a trilogy Alan Akebourne wrote, a set of three plays set in the same house, over the same weekend, with the same six characters, with bits from one play sometimes being overheard in another, or entrances and exits taking a character from one play to the next. However, the three plays can be watched in any order, or without seeing any of the others, and theatres don't always perform them together unlike his two plays House and Garden from 1999, which take things one step further. The two plays are performed to different audiences at the same time in theatres next door to each other. The other two plays in the trilogy with Table Manners are Living Together, which all happens in the living room, and Round and Round the Garden, which takes place in the garden, while Table Manners is set entirely in the dining room. Theatre, TV and radio versions of the trilogy have starred British household names like Penelope Keith, Felicity Kendall and Richard Briers, Tom Courtney, Penelope Wilton, Mark Kingston, Tom Conti, Michael Gambon, Stephen Mangan, Jessica Hines and Ben Miles, to name just a few. The trilogy has been a favourite with theatres and audiences alike since the 1970s, including an Old Vic and Broadway revival as recently as 2008, and amateur theatres all over the UK have been delighting audiences with the plays since 1978. I've sent John back into the Crescent Theatre to find out more. Where are you, John? You find me having flagged down two rehearsing actors on their way to the rehearsal studio. Hi, I'm Paula Snow and I Hi. play Ruth. She's a short-sighted lady who's sister to two of the other characters in the play, Reg and Annie, and she's married to Norman, and they've been married for five years. She's quite an opinionated person, even quite waspish at times. She's chosen not to have children. She's very much a workaholic, um, and she has little time for her husband's romantic notions. The, the couple appear to live quite independently, um, and she seems to be portrayed as wearing the trousers in the relationship. But I'm actually not so sure. That's a line I say in another scene of the play, but um, I think she's a little bit more vulnerable than she first appears. And Tom? Uh, hello, I'm Tom. I'm playing uh, Norman in the, in the, uh, in the play. Uh, I'm a bit of a, well, I believe myself to be a bit of a romantic um, at heart. Um, whether or not everybody always falls for it is questionable. Um, and I'm, I'm married to Ruth, um, uh, but it feels very much from the start of the play um, uh, that uh, their relationship is probably quite um, fractured uh, uh, over, over time. Um, but I appear 
um, at, the begin at the beginning of the play, um, having asked another character to um, come away with me for a, for a weekend, um, uh, and the play sort of goes from there um, with his normally having his ways um, of, <laughs> of uh, trying to uh, make people happy, as he likes to put it. Um, so Norman's a bit of a controversial character, and you yes. say he's married to Ruth, and Paula, you're playing Ruth. Right, so you yes. are on stage, husband and wife. Yes. And Norman is a controversial character because the first thing we learn about him is he's trying to take away uh, Ruth's sister yes. to have an affair with her. So yes. even nowadays that would that <laughs> yes. would be controversial. Be yes, it's yes, and that is kind of where all the family drama comes from to begin with. There are other things that might happen throughout the play that um, uh, that might add to that family tension. And Table Manners first premiered in 1973 at the Library Theatre in Scarborough. And in some respects, it is of its time. It's a conventional naturalistic play. The action takes place in a single dining room over two days with four scenes, two in each act. What is it about your characters and the play that is relevant and interesting to the here and now? Well, I mean, primarily from my point of view, particularly with the character of Ruth, it was not common in 1973 to have a career-driven wife who had the greater financial control in the marriage, as is the case with Ruth and Norman. I think Aitborn's chosen to portray Ruth in contrast to both her sister-in-law, who's a stay-at-home housewife with mm -hmm. children, and also her younger sister, who's unmarried and, and sole role seems to be caring for their aged mother. Um, I do think that, and I found this very interesting because I've been married for a long time, irrespective of, of that, the arguments that both married couples have, there's a distinct similarity, mm -hmm. even though the characters themselves are very different, and it's totally relevant today what they argue about. Yeah. Uh, I, I completely agree, I completely agree with that, um, particularly looking at how we're playing, all the characters act, there are certain lines that I have heard within the last year people still still saying I I know of someone who has to clean their house before they get before as soon as they get home from having hot being on holiday even though they've cleaned it just before they went on holiday and that was only two days ago yes and that's I, I have a mother who cleans the dishes before she puts them in the dishwasher yes which I, yeah a, a lot of people do and she tells me that's perfectly normal and, and that's the human condition I suppose yes. and the human condition hasn't changed yeah. since 1973. And I do think the fact that people lived in much closer, very suffocating family units last year during mm. lockdown has heightened that. True. As you said, yeah. Tom, so many of the things that are said, you think, hmm. And I think also, given the what's happening in the world, a lot more people are doing things like caring for relatives than possibly have been previously. So there are probably going to be more people like, like Annie who feel maybe feel a bit trapped yeah, so, so Annie's another character in the piece and, and she spends her time at her mother's home caring for her mother and the mother is the unseen presence, isn't she? That's right. She's, she's upstairs and she's talked about but we don't hear from or see her which, which is an interesting device to have inside the piece as well. Um, the play is filled with punchy uh, dialogue and it's pacey and there's comedic farce and the final scene in particular requires some skilled coordination. 
Can you update us on how you're approaching and dealing with these challenges? To me, it's three things, planning, practice and props. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. Yes, and uh, getting, and uh, I think we've, when we first started doing it, there was a lot of sort of planning where you were move, where all the movements were, and then we added props to it, and that just increased the amount of everything, and that actually goes throughout the, all, the whole play. Complexity, very, yeah. There's, there's a lot of props throughout the entirety of this play. Yeah. And, and in the third act in particular, and the reason why I sort of picked the third act, is because there's a meal that takes place. Yes. All the characters are at the meal. There's a real charade about who sits where, and then you're obviously dealing with cutlery, plates, food, and you're juggling all that around all the time while there's a bit of a heated, sometimes argument, sometimes discussion going on. That's right. I mean, I think there's not much room at all for any improvisation. You need to work really closely together, stick to the script and the agreed moves. And then hopefully what the audience will see is a chaotic scene will be really harmoniously achieved. That's what it's I mean. organised chaos, isn't it? It is, what very much so. What we're trying to achieve. I think that's really shown in, even in Aitborn's writing. He's, he's got very specific ways that he wants everything done, which we are trying to adhere to as much as we can, but then we've obviously have got to... You've got to put your own spin on it in, to a degree, and that's been another challenge. Yeah. It is, yes, because some of the stage directions, and particularly in relation to the props, are very prescriptive, mm. and indeed the dialogue just doesn't make sense without... It, a clear interpretation of what they are. Mm. I'm very lucky. Ruth doesn't have many props to deal with. Actually, to be fair, neither, neither do I. We, we, we're, we're pretty we're pretty lucky with the. Amount You've of props. got away quite lightly. We, we, yes. yes, there are there are one or two characters in this play who have a, a lot of carrying trays and uh, passing plates around and getting exactly the right person to pass the ball to at the right time. Otherwise, the, the the line halfway down the page isn't going to make any sense, and that leads to another joke. And it's you know that, there's a lot of that kind. In of in the last episode, we spoke to um, props. We went and talked to the props department, and they described a play where there was lots of plates and tea coming in and out, and how they had to have things ready and wash things up and get it all um, in this constant succession of movement. And and it really is a skill to get that sort of thing right, which is. Why well, I wanted to ask the question really and, and see where where you're up to it. So and the play, more broadly, has a certain unity of purpose about the stagecraft. The dining room in which the play is set badly needs redecorating according to the stage directions. The food that we see, when it's consumed or described, is dull, wrong, old, or badly mixed. The characters seem to be hungry or dissatisfied in some way. How does this carry through to your characters and their actions? On a, on a lighter level um, and purely practical, because the food is so appetising, it means we don't actually physically have to eat very much of it. Well, particularly you don't have to eat very much of it. I, I don't like it at all, so I don't eat very much. <laughs> and so we sort of play around with it, which is at least we get over the having to speak with your mouthful <laughs> most mm. of the time. Yeah, or, or choking on a bit of soup, which yes. would be... Difficult to um, move beyond while I mean, you were performing. I mean, my character Ruth um, openly displays her displeasure during the dinner scene, um, verbally and physically, and that that then leads on to a more farcical element mm. of that particular scene yeah. as well. I think actually one of the talking about the disgust that they, that they have, particularly our characters, um, have a tendency to make some slightly snide remarks 
that might lead to some more some of the more comical elements to the to to the play is I think Ruth is much more sort of very very snide and sort of very, making all these not very nice comments whereas Norman tries to make them sort of almost slightly funny as almost his ways of flirting badly um, and I think that's I think they they utilize those in interesting in interesting ways um, yeah. yes I mean I think the general theme of dissatisfaction that you alluded to, I think that's very much, whether it's the food, the houses that they live in, uh, the situations they find themselves mm. in, it just mirrors their dis- semi-dysfunctional family mm. relationships. I think it's, it, it's, it's the physical manifestation of that, really. Exciting stuff. And finally, Alan Aikbourne, the playwright of Table Manners, is a prolific British playwright. He was born in 1939 and to date has written over 85 plays, which I didn't know before I started to do the research um, for this. And I think that's incredible that he's written um, over 85 plays. I think he's still writing too. Yeah, oh, he's still going. Yeah, he's still going. Table Manners is itself the first of a trilogy of plays entitled The Norman Conquests, after your character, Tom. And nearly all of Aikbourne's many plays have been premiered at the Scarborough Stephen Joseph Theatre, which he has a a real um, relationship with. His first hit in 1969 was called Relatively Speaking, but what were some of his other plays called? To test your knowledge, I'm going to pit you against each other in a game of true or false, called Aikbourne or Fakebourne. It's the best of five, so five questions each. There's no pressure, but it is a competition. So, if I say the name of a play, you have to decide, is it real, Aikbourne, or is it fake, Fakebourne? The first one, uh, Paula, Drowning on Dry Land. Aikbourne. Correct. One point. This was Aikbourne's 66th play. It was first performed in 2004 and explores the 21st century phenomenon of unearned celebrity status. Tom, this one's for you. The Restoration Tragedies. Is that Aikbourne or Fakebourne? Fakebourne? Correct. It is Fakebourne. That's one point each. Paula, this one's for you. A bird in the hand. Is that Aikbourne or is it Fakebourne? Fakebourne. Correct. You're both on a roll today. Tom, body language. Is it Aikbourne or is it Fakebourne? Aikbourne. Correct. Well done. Two points each. Body language was a 1990 play which dealt with issues of body image and the play's unexpected development occurs at the climax of the first act when a glamour model and a journalist lose their heads, that's literally they lose their heads, in an accident involving a helicopter rotor. At the beginning of the second act, they are revealed to have been miraculously saved, but, unfortunately, in the process, their decapitated heads have been attached to the wrong bodies. Sounds interesting. Mm. Paula, this one's for you. Invisible friends. Is it Aikborn or Fakeborn? Fakebourne. It's Aikbourne, I'm afraid. So, Tom, you've got a chance to take the lead here. Invisible Friends was a play for young people. It was first performed at Christmas in 1989 at the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough, and it's often regarded as a companion piece to A Woman in Mind. Uh, Tom, this one's for you, the chance to take the lead. Under the carpet, is it Aikbourne 
or Fakeborn? Eggborn? It's Fakeborn. You didn't take the lead, I'm afraid. It's still level peggings. This one's for you, Paula. This is where we came from. Is it Eggborn or is it Fakeborn? Fakeborn. <clears throat> I'm afraid it's Eggborn. It's still level peggings at two points each. This is where we came in is another play for families and young people, which is based on the idea of twisted fairy tales, and it was first performed in 1990. Tom, Chinese whispers, is it Eggborn or Fakeborn? I think that is it. <coughs> it's Fakeborn. Paula, snake in the grass, Eggborn or Fakeborn? Fakeborn. It's Eggborn, I'm afraid. It's a psychological thriller, ghost story, rather than a comedy, and it premiered in 2002. Tom, this is your chance to take all the glory. Okay, You've no got pressure. A, you've got a 50-50 chance here of winning the whole thing. Arrivals and departures. Is it Eggborn or is it Fakeborn? Eggborn? It is Eggborn. You are the winner. Congratulations. <laughs> Eggborn's 77th play, incredibly, which premiered in 2013. Arrivals and Departures is about two strangers, a traffic warden and a soldier, brought together during a covert security mission, and they relive memories of their lives. Thank you both. It's been wonderful to have you. We look forward to seeing Table Manners, which, as I said earlier, opens on November the 13th. Um, and I, I, you've got to head off to the rehearsal room now and apologise to the director because I've made you late for rehearsals. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including Table Manners, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. And we'd love it if you got in touch too. So feel free to leave comments and likes. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts to get the next episode. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It's presented by Laura East, Michael McLernan and John O'Neill. Title music is by Brendan Stanley. The research is by Laura East and Liz Plumpton. And it's edited by Kevin Middleton. <laughs> <laughs>